body. Hey, big day in our country. Let's pray for our country. Let's pray for the new president. Let's pray for peace upon our land. And let's just pray for God's grace and a great open window for the church. Lord, we just pray on this inauguration day for President Biden, God, Vice President Harris, God. We just pray that you would just bring great people, great wise counselors, Lord, into their life, God. Surround them uh, with prosperity and strength, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for all those who've led our nation, God. We're in your hands. Lord Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that you would just watch over our land. Let there be healing. Let there be strength. God, let there be wisdom, God. And Lord, I pray that this would be the greatest hour for the church uh, in American and human history, God. I pray, Jesus, that we would be positioned, God. Lord, not to right or left, God, but we would position in that glorious middle cross, Jesus, uh, in which you hung high, God, and boldly, Lord, for the sins of mankind, Jesus. Lord, we just pray today, Lord, peace for our city, peace for our nation, and blessing upon the new president. In Jesus' name, amen, and amen, and amen. Awesome. Okay, guys, we're going to turn our hearts to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. Now I'm going to give you uh, the whole gist of this message. And yes, it's contextualized at the times in which we have lived and are living. Hello, sweetheart. You just got here. Good to see you. Um, if I'll stay back, but I want to come down here a little bit. Um, is, did I just break a rule? If I squeeze this way. Um, here it is. This is what I really want you to remember about what I'm about to teach. And I'm going to read you the story. And it's all going to end up, don't jump ahead to the very last verse in the book of Jonah. Um, I think we've had the death of something this last year in our nation with all of the turmoil, the tension, all of it. No, no one needs to paint the picture again. We've all described it a thousand times. We get it. Okay. But here's what I think has been lost, missing, and what needs to be resurrected. And I think this is the question or the observation which to me pierces the deepest into my soul. We're, we're trying to locate the Christian in the story of America this last year. We can't locate the Christian. Where's the Christian in all of this? Uh, and I think as we're watching literally the Assyrians and the Egyptians battle each other, we're trying to locate where the Christian is, is in this story. That's, that's our dilemma. We can't find ourselves in the story because we're trying to be in the center of it. Uh, the church, or Christians, God's people, were not always in the middle of everything. Sometimes they were situated just to the side of the Egyptians and the Babylonians were killing each other, and the Assyrians and all of it, these kings went after each other, and Israel was positioned near and prophesied into it, but they weren't in the middle of that particular battle. Here's what I'm saying, is that one thing I think we have missed, and I want to say this right, because I said it to Karen yesterday or this morning, uh, based on this teaching, and I know I'm not preaching and going into it yet, but I just want to say this in a way that you hear it. And if I don't say it right the first time, I'm going to try to say it right a second time because it's important we hear this. We have had um, this movement, this initiative of compassion in this country. Compassion toward suffering. And we have had compassion toward a victim. There's another level that the Bible teaches beyond compassion for the victim and compassion and love for those suffering. 
We're good at that. We've taken to the streets, had prayer meetings, prophesied that our hearts have got to get bigger for those that are suffering and those who've been victims of injustice. Do you know the Bible teaches, though, something different? It's not about your life and my life as a mature believer is not measured by my compassion and love toward those that are suffering and my compassion and love toward the victim. My entire faith is measured by my compassion and love for my enemy, not the victim. So in your mind, I want you to place those in your the mental picture politically, socially, spiritually, genealogy, you know, in your family. People that you despise. People literally that you can't even conjure up a sympathetic kingdom emotion toward. And I want you to think about that person, the person that you literally hate, politically, socially, spiritually. I want you to keep that person in mind as we study the book of Jonah for just a minute and until we get to the very last verse of the book. So here we go. Jonah uh, chapter one. I'm going to read from the NIV. I might read. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation here. I might go back and forth between the New American Standard and New Living. It says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked these people are. But Jonah got up and ran in the opposite direction. This is a very simple story about somebody running from God. That's how the whole thing frames, running from God. God has called you to go do something and you go in the opposite direction and you're running from God. You can run from God and not even end up at a place like NCU if God's called you here, but maybe you got here and now you're running from God. Even though you're here, you're running from God. You're running from the clarity and the call of God on your life to do something that's very specific. And you're just going in the opposite direction. It may be that the Lord called you to this school to grow spiritually. And you're going in the opposite direction. So this is a story fundamentally about somebody that is running from the Lord. It said Jonah got up and ran in the opposite direction away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa. He found a ticket on a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought the ticket, went on board, hoping to escape the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Here again, you have God working in a storm on a ship like Acts 27. The apostle Paul's on that ship, 276 people. He's one of those 200, I think, 276 in there in the New Testament. Now you have Jonah on board and the whole scene of the kingdom shifts to this ship and the storm that they are in. Remember, it, this is a story about somebody running from God. God has called them to do this, and they went in the opposite direction of that call. And he thought he could hide in a ship out on the open sea, but the Lord sent a storm, and uh, the ship began to go through this unbelievable experience. The captain went down 
and found Jonah asleep. So the captain said, how can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted, get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. When the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm, when they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. Why has this awful storm come down on us? They demanded, why are you? Who are you? Why are you in this line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? This our problems are because of the outsider. So literally, he was this outsider on this ship. They didn't know him. He was a stranger. And we always want to point to the stranger when we're in a storm and things lose control. Who's the stranger among us here? And maybe you're the cause of this. And they cast lots in this, this mystical way of trying to identify sovereignly God, God's plural at that point. Show us the source of this storm, and the lots all pointed to Jonah. So God used this mystical, uh, non-God-honoring way, almost sorcery way of, of interacting with these people that didn't even know Jehovah God to point, and he was redeeming and using this crazy scene is what I'm saying, this crazy methodology for finding out and letting Jonah know, you're not running from me. I got you on the radar. You look like you're entirely in a secular, spiritual, God's not here. You're running from me. You're hiding from me. And yet God is manipulating the Rubik's Cube. And he is pointing this out to Jonah. And then the people do what people tend to do in a storm. We got to throw somebody overboard, just like it was in the New Testament. When you're in a storm and things are perilous, the next move by human beings is to start throwing people overboard. Let's start eliminating people. And through the process of elimination, not collaboration, we will get to the root of this situation. Jonah, he said, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified when they heard this, for they had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should you do to stop this storm? And he said, throw me into the sea. And so this sense of martyrdom and, and responsibility and all of this overtakes Jonah, just hurl me over. And they said, um, the sea will be calm. I know that this terrible storm is my fault. Instead, the sailors rode even harder to get the ship to land, but the stormy sea was too violent, and they couldn't make it. Then they cried out, Lord, oh God, please don't kill us for, for this man's sin, and don't hold us responsible for throwing him overboard. Lord, you have sent this storm upon us for your own good reasons. That's the mindset we have to have in America right now, as the church. The, the storm that hit this country that we're in is for the Lord's good reason. He's after people. He wants to redeem people. He's looking for people who are running from him. The whole purpose of the chaos could be to identify the people that are going in the opposite direction of what God intended for their life. Much bigger storm than politics and COVID. God is working this like a Rubik's Cube. He's, he's manipulating by his redemptive, sovereign power in order to bring people back into alignment with, their, with his purpose and ways. So they, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the raging sea. You know, I picture like, you know, the, 
deadliest catch in those shows where they're out there in the North Sea and they're out there in those ships. They're just hurling Jonah into the night, into a wave like that. They threw him overboard. The sailors were awestruck because this, the raging sea became calm. And they offered a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish. The Lord arranged a fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days. And all of this amazing power and metaphor of Christ in the tomb begins to unfold. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord. Uh, Lord is my, uh, I cried out to the Lord of my great trouble and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths. I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, Lord, you have driven me far from your presence. Yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. Can you imagine in the storm overboard, sinking in the bottom of the sea and then you turn to the Lord. So the Lord is going to let this thing play out in your life as far as you want it to go until you turn in the right direction from the opposite direction. Now he's beginning to turn toward the Lord. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates lock shut forever. But you, Lord, my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord. And my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. And I will fulfill all my vows for my salvation comes from the Lord. This is, he's sinking, he's in the water. And he starts lifting up praise to the Lord. Then the Lord ordered the fish to vomit Jonah out onto the beach. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large it took him three days to see it. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now Nineveh will be destroyed. And that's a pretty brutal message. That's a pretty hopeless message. I remember one time my pastor, when I was young, he told me some about people that prophesy wacky things, like wacky things. One time this person, month of December, true story in a church goes, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, the Lord would say, the Lord would say, thus saith the Lord, the Lord would, wants everyone to know, the Lord today would say, first of all, Merry Christmas. Uh, and that, that the Lord came down to say, Merry Christmas, really? Then one time he's in a church, person screamed from the back row, Thus saith the Lord, I am not here. What? So what was that? Thus saith the Lord, I'm not here. Well, then who's talking in this moment? Some people can say some pretty hopeless things prophetically. You talk about telling a city in 40 days you will become non-existent. That's a shocking prophecy to this city. The people of Nineveh believe God's message. Now, here's something fun. We don't have time to go into this. 763. This is right around 780 B.C. to 750 B.C. 763 B.C. Look this up on Wikipedia. This isn't even in the Bible. I'm talking about this is in science. This part of Iraq, which is Nineveh, had one of the most historic uh, um, solar eclipses in, on June 15th, 1763, or 763 B.C. Read about it. It's right when Jonah was there prophesying. 
And so a lot of historians, Bible scholars, believe that this solar eclipse turned everything black right on the, in the midst of this message. And history records that this actually happened in Iraq in 763 BC, June 15th. Which would have put, that's right when historians place Jonah prophesying. So because we read about the fish um, and we go, well, this is just a Sunday school metaphor. But it's interwoven with all these historical facts and leaders and kings that actually served. Powerful. So the city, the conditions of the message, but the conditions, I believe, scientifically in the heavens, created an awareness among the people in the skies that God was speaking. Powerful. And so the Bible says that they declared a fast. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped from his throne, took off his royal robes, dressed himself in burlap, and, a, and sat on a heap of ashes in this sackcloth, which really is a garment that immobilizes you. If you move in sackcloth, you can't function or do anything. You have to sit perfectly still for it not to irritate. So the idea is I'm setting aside every distraction and every other behavior in my life. I'm going to repent in this sackcloth in ashes. I've got nowhere else to go but here, Lord. This is what's happening to the king of Nineveh. This message is so powerful. Now watch what happens quickly. And the worship team's going to be back up. You guys can start moving if you want. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds or flocks, may eat or drink anything uh, at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. Everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. The sense of turning to the Lord is not just simply turning to aligning and participating with acts of love for the hurting. This is always about searching the evil of our own hearts. Searching the evil of our own heart. That's when revival is actually happening, when we are not thinking about the behavior of our neighbor. We're only thinking about our own behavior, our own heart. You can have lots of inspiring church meetings in which you say, oh, people are wicked. What a wicked thing. Everybody's wicked. That person's wicked. You're wicked. That's not revival, friends. Revival takes away all awareness of your neighbor's behavior. And it just focuses on, Lord, my own walk with you. Where am I at, Lord, with you? And you begin to see your sin, not your neighbor's sin, friends. And so, real quick, I just want to get to this this. The big verse. When God saw that they had done this and how they had put, put a stop to doing evil, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he threatened. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. Now this guy was operating as a prophet. The city has obeyed his message, turned their hearts but his message didn't even give a message of hope, friends. His message was just, there's destruction. We're at the end of the line. The people turned to God. God turned their hearts in such a way. They turned their heart to God in such a way that God changed his mind. And this upset Jonah. You see this theme throughout Scripture where people are angry. If you study most parables in the New Testament, there's, just a, there's a common theme. Someone has joy and someone's angry in a parable, that the other person has joy. And they're angry that God is gracious. God 
released debt and he released people. And someone in the story is always upset that God would love my enemy. Why would you love my enemy, God? Because the test of your life and mine is not our love for the victim. It's whether we will love our enemies. Whether God can stir compassion. I could say a lot right now. I'm holding my words. Because I got some great illustrations of this, but they're probably not appropriate. Who makes your blood boil? Who disgusts you? Is it a politician? Is it a, someone in the media? Sports figure? Who just makes you, who, who triggers you? Like I can't even hear that name, it triggers me. That's your Nineveh right there. And yeah, you'll go and tell them what's for. Destruction, man. Your day's done. Hourglass is over in your life. 40 days destruction. You're done. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's no high calling in that. I can rage and I can sanitize it in a biblical way and feel very right and righteous. And then the Lord saves that person who I hate. What if the Lord saves the person that you hate? Where's that gonna leave you? You're gonna be in no person's land, no man's land, no person's land. You're going to be caught in this middle. We're like, okay, God, I've obeyed you, but I despise her, him, this, that. And then the Lord works in that person's world, and you're caught off guard by it, and we're bringing this to a close. I'm mad that you did this, Lord. So he complained to the Lord, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran in the opposite direction. <clears throat> I don't want to be part of seeing my enemy saved. I knew that you were merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. This is how deeply rooted this worldview. I will love those who suffer and I will love those who are victims but I will never love an enemy. I have too much invested in my hatred toward this person. So Lord, I, I, can't, I can't join you. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? And then Jonah went out and I'll just cut to the chase. The Lord brings this shade over him quickly, this leafy plant to ease his discomfort and then sends a worm to take away the shade. So he gets a tiny glimpse of grace and he's back living in the extreme heat of the desert, uncovered, unprotected. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah recorded, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, here and we're done.
You feel sorry about a plant? You feel sorry about a plant? Though you did nothing to put it there, it came quickly and died quickly. Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. People who don't know their right hand from their left. It's one of the great verses in all the Bible. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand? You know what, that, you know what that's a metaphor? All these people in this city can't tell right from wrong. They don't know evil from good. They don't know their left hand from the right hand. That seems to be the United States of America right now. We don't know our left hand from our right hand. Everybody's positioned themselves to hate the other. I'm saying as believers, I'm not participating in that battle, friends. I want to live in a courageous middle, not a compromised middle, a courageous middle in which I want the Lord to save and bless my enemies, not just bless my friends. When Jesus washed the feet of Peter and allowed Judas to kiss his cheek. These were powerful illustrations of Jesus loving his enemy, not just loving somebody that's hurting. So the test today is, Lord, what's my Nineveh? What triggers me? And how do I feel about that person, that thing, those people? God, work in me to love people who don't know their left hand from their right hand, people who are so morally corrupt, they don't know anything. Help me to love them the way you love them, Lord. And I want to see Nineveh saved, not judged. Let's stand together, friends. Jesus, we love you today. We praise you today as we move into a time of worship. Lord, I just pray, take over this room in your glorious, powerful name. Thank you, guys. All yours. All yours.